code just becomes another sort of facet of that. Sometimes you're using code to create an animation, or sometimes you're using code to create an illustration or a computer graphic. And it's going to become much more normal to see code in this kind of space. Hi, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. My name is Franco Verano, and I'll be your host for the Tech Plus Art podcast. Tech Plus Art is the community for curious individuals and creators who are looking to make a dent in the universe. Together, we're exploring the new frontiers of creativity, humanity, and how emerging technologies will continue to shape our culture, professions, products, and much more. Join me on this journey as we speak with artists, makers, researchers, designers, and creators from all backgrounds and fields. Tech Plus Art is an inclusive community, and we make our content for you, so we want to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, topics you'd like us to explore or contribute to yourself, reach out to us on Twitter or via the website. You can check us out at maketechart.com or at maketechart everywhere else. So with that out of the way, let's get to today's episode. All right, so today we're chatting with the incredible Matt Delorier. When I first started exploring the overlap between creativity and technology, Matt's work quickly came across my screen. With a background in game design, Matt quickly wanted to do more. Today, he's a creative coder living in London, working on a variety of projects. So a huge shout out to Matt for taking the time to be on the show today. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. I'm super excited to have you on the show to get a chance to speak with you. I'm a big fan of your, your work for a while. So really pumped to, to kind of dive right into it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for folks who maybe just be joining us and don't know a ton about you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work? You know, what did you study? How did you get started? Sure. So I'm a creative coder, which means I use code and I write code in programs for creative applications, sometimes for print artworks or large projection mapped artworks, or sometimes just for a website, really just for anything. And uh, I sort of started this kind of came about naturally. I was in film school and then Eventually, I went into coding, and I started in like an advertising agency, and then I sort of just transitioned into freelance creative coding. And ever since, it's kind of grown into this organic art world. So it's been a very organic process the whole time, just uh, evolving and constantly changing my path and continuing to change my path as I go forward. It's very cool. I think we're going to dive into that and explore it as we continue to chat throughout the course of the episode. And, and now you're in London as well, so I'd love to get your perspectives on like a European scene versus... North American Canadian scene uh, since you're Canadian yourself, but finding this path organically and kind of evolving your career. How did you really get started on that path? Was, was it somebody that introduced you? Was it, was it a prof? Was it, how did you get started? So I've kind of always been interested in coding. Ever since I was a kid, I would sort of hack around with, mostly it started with games, like old school games. And I would either hack the games or try to break the games, sometimes getting into the files and actually like changing the hex codes to level myself up by a thousand or whatever. And uh, just really getting into the sort of technical nitty gritty of these, these games that I used to play, just something like Doom or RuneScape or one of these old school games. And it sort of just continued to grow ever since then. I was really passionate about game design, game development. And when I started to actually get into the industries and into work life, I realized I didn't want to make games. I wanted to just make more creative projects that, that weren't so three or four year long projects. And so what have been some of the projects that you've had a chance to take on? I mean, you describe yourself as a creative coder that, that is always evolving, but you mentioned earlier installations. And so what kind of work have you had a chance to, to dip into? The work has sort of been all over the place. It kicked off quite a bit a few years ago when I had this project where it was a generative installation that was set in the Louvre Museum in Paris. And that was a huge opportunity where I was commissioned to do a artwork with WebGL and with real-time graphics. 
and it would respond to Twitter streams in real time. And sort of that is where it all began doing uh, these kind of generative graphics. And since then, it's been evolving into different types of projects. Sometimes it's like a magazine will commission me for a generative artwork that's driven by data. Sometimes it's more like a web-based project. A client has a specific website and they want a specific effect. That is something that you can only achieve with WebGL and real-time graphics and interactivity and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's a bit all over the map and I'm still finding which area I like to focus in. Sometimes it's light art or physical installations with Raspberry Pi. That's kind of the fun thing as well is just exploring all these different spaces and different ways of using code for creative purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dive into some more of that a little bit, like what made you move to London? How, how did that part of the journey fit into to who you are as an artist and a creator? So two years ago, I started freelancing. And this is where it sort of my work shifted quite a bit. I ended up realizing that I could work remotely and I could just be in a cafe or working from home, doing remote work with any client around the world. And after a year of doing that, I realized I could move and I started looking at different cities. So yeah, I chose London because the community there is really vibrant. There's a lot of freelancers. There's a lot of people working with media art and, and code. And it's just a really fun city to, to live and work in, especially as a freelancer. That's wicked. And so now that you're getting to continue to explore, I guess, the type of work that you want to do, you know, you're in London surrounded by a really big community, but you can kind of gauge clients wherever based on, on what they're looking to do. How do you find yourself balancing creating for yourself and creating for, for a living? Is, is it one and the same for you or do you actually separate those two parts of your life? Yeah, that's always a really tricky thing. Sometimes I'll have a creative project from a client and I'm actually really excited about it and I'll actually end up working sometimes you know, late nights or even on a weekend. And then the reverse is true. Sometimes I'll be creating something for a client and maybe I'm not so excited by it and I sort of have to pull myself to find that motivation. And then other times it's just I'm getting motivated by ideas that are totally not related to client work. And that sort of spills over into my client work sometimes. So it's this very organic and, and kind of messy process where Sometimes I'm too focused on, on the client work. Sometimes I'm too focused on sort of the art side of things, just the pure sort of creative process. And there's definitely a bit of an overlap, but uh, it's something that I've been working on in the last year or so, trying to split that a little bit to finish my work at, at the end of the day and, and try and watch a movie or read a book or just shut off a little bit and try to enjoy the, uh, the little things and not always be thinking about code and computation and, and art and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it, it probably varies based on engagement, what you're interested in, but what's your creative process like? How do you approach solving a problem or, or just, you know, being able to express your creativity? Where, where do you get ideas and inspiration from and how do you integrate that into that process? Yeah, so my, uh, my process has sort of grown a lot in the last couple of years. It started off just being me sitting in front of a blank code editor and sort of just trying to mash code together until I came up with something interesting. And that never really worked that well. And nowadays what I do is, is much more regimented and I'll sort of start with a lot of sketching, like hundreds of post-it notes all over the table or all over the wall and uh, a lot of iteration, brainstorming. And before I even get into writing code, I just want to have a very good idea of what I'm trying to build and problems I'm trying to solve. Just things like, how am I going to even code this thing? How am I going to create this system or this algorithm. And also another thing that I've been really doing in the last couple of years is going to art exhibitions and, and going to galleries and, and museums and looking for inspiration online as well and just trying to find other artists and others working in this space and trying to sometimes collaborate with them or just look at their work and experience their work. And even today I went to uh, at Tate Modern in London 
there's a show by Olafur Eliasson, and it's this amazing show. It's like this really cool, immersive exhibition where he goes through a lot of his different work. Some of it's just like this beautiful light art installation stuff. Some of it's a bit immersive and almost interactive. So there's tons of inspiration to be found in those kind of things as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And so speaking about finding, you know, that inspiration and I guess like working on different projects, what have been some of your most ambitious projects to date? So definitely my most ambitious project was one called Lumos, which was in Toronto in Ontario Place Park. It was for a winter light exhibition. And we, me and a friend of mine, we submitted a very rough proposal of this structure, this kind of light sculpture that when you approach the light, it would be this cold blue light. And when you approached it, the light would sense your body heat and it would turn from this cold blue to a warm red hue. This sounded really simple when we pitched the idea and they liked the idea. They liked the design. It was sort of inspired by like a warming hut from the future almost. They liked the idea and everything. And then we started thinking, okay, how are we going to build this sculpture of light? And it's interactive and has to respond to human warmth. And we realized we were a bit out of our element. So I had a friend who's a really good engineer. He came onto the project as well. So it was me and my two friends, Stephen Mangin, who's the designer, and Jean-Michel Garriepi, who's the engineer. And the three of us, we sort of put our heads together and tried to figure out how can we build this thing that at the time we didn't have the skills necessary to build it. But we spent three months or so really learning every detail we could about actually building these kind of hardwares and, and designing them from the ground up. And by the end of it, we had this beautiful light art installation using Raspberry Pi and LEDs. And it was built with this woodworking from a woodworker in Toronto, Christine DeWanker. And the whole process was, it started out, we were way over our heads, but by the end of it, we had this beautiful sculpture. And I mean, after that kind of project, now I feel like I can tackle anything. But that was definitely one that was very ambitious. Yeah, absolutely. That's super cool. And so a little bit of your creative process that, that you mentioned a second ago is like, you know, sketching and then, you know, really identifying what the problem is and then figuring out the best way to approach building it. And again, I'm, I'm sure it varies project to project and client to client. But when you dive into that process of, you know, identifying what the problem is, figuring out what the outcome is, and then trying to figure out the best approach, what tools do you use commonly to kind of go ahead and, and try to have that creative output fulfilled? And do you end up having to create anything along the way to sort of make your vision a reality, whether that's software, whether that's physical, like, how does that kind of fit into your process? Definitely, like tools is a huge part of my process, not just using design tools like Photoshop, After Effects, or Blender for 3D things, or sometimes other tools like Maya or Cinema 4D, and then sometimes tweaking those with like a Python script or something like that. But also in the last few years, I've been really focused on making my own tools. And so that's quite often doing something like writing code with JavaScript to produce a specific software that is very specific to my workflow and the kind of art that I want to create, and then using that software to create more art. And so I go through these sort of phases where Sometimes I'm really focused on just making art. And then sometimes I'm really focused on making tools. And then when I'm sort of tired of making the tool, I'll use the tool to make art. And I sort of go through this up and down phase. And it's a really nice way of working because you know sometimes you're just have this creative energy and you want to just make art. And then other times it's hard to find that creative energy. So you spend time just thinking about design tools and thinking about how can you optimize your own workflow so that later when you do have that energy again, can go back to just pumping out new work. So right now I'm actually sort of more in this tool phase and I'm recently I've been exploring using custom code in Figma, which is a design tool, an online cloud-based design tool. 
and writing plugins in Figma that are sort of specific for generative art and generative design and things like that. Speaking about that, that up and down, and I know like a lot of the creative coder community tends to say that like when you are writing custom scripts or plugins or, or whatever, you know, you sort of want to give the program or the code some parameters, but then you're actually hoping to discover unique things. So within that, within that discovery phase of, of the sort of the unexpected randomness that, that is inserted, like, is that what sometimes gives you the creative energy to pursue new concepts or discover new elements that you weren't quite sure might, might have been there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, that's kind of the beauty of like working with code and, and generative algorithms is that you don't really ever know exactly what it's going to produce. There's always this kind of surprise and there's always this collaboration where you're collaborating with the machine or the system that you're building. Maybe it's from code or, or some set of rules or logic, but sometimes it'll produce something that you weren't expecting. And maybe that's because of the way you wrote it, or maybe there's an error, or maybe there's a bug or a glitch, but those can all be kind of exciting and, and produce images and outputs that are sometimes better than what you were intending. So it's kind of this choreographed dance, like collaboration where you're doing some things and the machine's doing some things and together you guys are creating something that's more than just if, if it was you on your own trying to produce something. Absolutely. It's very cool. So you spoke a little bit about, the, I guess, the creative community, specifically in London. Can you elaborate on that and maybe even throw in like how you've seen the community respond in different parts of the world, maybe other cities that, that you've visited? What is it like having that community and individuals you can go to for inspiration or ideas or, or even some help? One of the coolest things about creative coding is the community, for sure. It's this really rich, vibrant community. A lot of it's on social media like Twitter and Instagram. And a lot of people are very connected through code and through creative coding to the point where I'll go to a new city and sometimes I can meet people just by way of us having this in common. There's meetups, there's events, there's lots of conferences and places to meet these people, but there's also these sort of online channels where everyone's chatting and helping and giving each other tips and, and feedback. Another good example is in New York and in San Francisco, they've had these meetups called uh, Plotter People. And this is all coming from this one hashtag on Twitter called Plotter Twitter. And so this hashtag started out people just that had pen plotters, which are these mechanical devices, uh, and they'd be using these mechanical devices to create art with code and with computation. And they'd be sharing the images and they'd be sharing a hashtag hashtag Potter Twitter. Eventually, this sort of grew into its own little thing to the point that these people started meeting up in New York and, and San Fran. And now they have like an annual meetup. And I'm trying to get the same thing to come to London and like trying to grow these, these circles in different cities. Because yeah, there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of community around it. It's really cool. How have you seen, I guess, the creative community in different parts of the world? Like you mentioned New York, San Francisco, London. Is it dispersed because it is done through social media? Or what are some of those hubs, you know, maybe in other parts of the world like? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it seems focused in some of the major cities. That's where you start to see like large pockets of people that are meeting up together and actually working on things together and collaborating in person. There's enough people around the world in smaller cities as well, like not just in Europe and, and North America, but also South America and, and Asia and things like that. It's, it's kind of all over the map and it's all over the place, which is really exciting. But yeah, definitely aside from London and New York, there's Berlin, there's lots of this kind of work. There's a lot of studios as well. In Berlin, there's a couple, there's one called Onformative that's kind of been, been around for a long time doing a lot of creative coding and a lot of media art installations that are often using code and generative systems and things like that. And there's a few others in Berlin as well. And it seems like it's all over the place. And thankfully, we have social media to sort of connect us all. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing to hear that, that there's such a vibrant community. But I, I do know that, you know, it, it is still growing. There's still sometimes some people, you know, kind of wondering, like, where do I get started? What are some of the things? So what do you feel is, is kind of missing in the industry at large? What do you wish existed that would help you feel more productive or fulfilled? One of the things I'd like to see more is like more tools that are sort of focused on artists and designers, but still encourage a lot of code and sort of bridge that gap. Because one of the things I've noticed the most is that people would often identify either as a coder or as a designer, and and there's not a lot of blurring of those lines. And it's starting to happen a lot more in the last few years. But when I was getting into the sort of this whole space, uh, I was sort of feeling like I was either one or the other, when really I, I sort of felt like I wasn't really one or the other, and I couldn't identify either as just a coder or as just a designer. It's nice to see more of those kind of tools coming out, and there are more and more tools nowadays coming out that are things like visual programming that are sort of bridging that gap and allowing designers and artists to iterate and create these kind of generative artworks without always having to write as much code or without having to dive directly into code. And then likewise, in the other way, there's there's more and more tools that are appealing to coders that are allowing them to sort of design things parametrically and use sliders and change colors and, and sort of start to think more about the design of the thing rather than just the engineering of the thing. So yeah, I would say definitely the thing that that is missing and that is starting to come but is still missing is just design tools that bridge this this gap between design and, and code. What are some of the common tools that, that you use? And like, I guess, how do you go about exploring like for your own workflow, the tools and apps that you need to build, the software that you build? Like, is it based on a particular stack that you're used to? Is it solution specific that you're trying to achieve? Or is it just like, hey, I'm going to open up Figma and see what this environment is like because I feel like it? Yeah, I mean, in most of my work, it's kind of based on what I need. So if I have a new project that comes in and it's demanding something that I haven't coded before, that I haven't explored before, if it's something that I'm confident that I could code, then I'll probably just code it myself in JavaScript and maybe WebGL or 3JS or or just plain Canvas 2D or something. But sometimes it's something that I would be easier to, to use a tool for. So like maybe bringing in Blender for something like really high quality 3D renders, or in the case of Figma, it might be, Figma might be a very good tool for doing vector artwork, like a pen tool. And that's where not just vector artwork, but also text and really nice typographic designs. And that's kind of where I might use a tool like Figma is thinking, okay, how can I apply my my code and and my computation and sort of these generative systems to something more like vector-based and something more flat style illustrative versus Blender might be 3D, that kind of thing. Absolutely. That's super cool. And so we've talked a lot about, I guess, the past, you know, where, where you in particular have come from, where the community is going to come from and where it is right now and in some cities in the world. Like, where do you think it's headed? Either computational, you know, creativity, creative coding, generative artwork. Like, where do you think that whole movement of human creativity in parallel with the machine is, is headed? So when I think of the future of design and code and computational creativity and sort of where this could all evolve, I sort of think that it's all going to blend in together into this one big mixing pot where it's sometimes motion graphics, sometimes animation, sometimes illustration, but also sometimes code. And code just becomes another sort of facet of that. Sometimes you're using code to create an animation, or sometimes you're using code to create an illustration or a computer graphic. And it's going to become much more normal to see code in this kind of space and to not just hire coders, but hire artists that are familiar with code in the same way that we 
by now when we think of web design, we often think of somebody that can do a little bit of the visual design, but also a little bit of the coding side of things. It's kind of blended in together. And I think the same might happen with these uh, design industries and these sort of computer graphics related fields. Even something like Houdini, I think, is really beginning to introduce a lot more code into the industry. And it really does feel like the future, and especially when you look at like films and sort of these very high scale, high grade professional motion graphics industries. Quite often they're using code uh, and they're getting people that are working with visual systems that are also sort of writing the, the mathematics to produce crazy particle simulations or fluid sims or something like that. So yeah, I, I don't know exactly where the future is, but definitely going to be interesting. And there's definitely code is going to fit into that, I think. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, for sure. Super exciting. I mean, it's definitely, you know, the, the start of definitely the start of something new and, and, and something that, you know, we're going to have to keep an eye on and see how it continues to evolve. Different types of ind individuals leverage different tools, different professional or industry knowledge in, or in their creations and in the process of making something. So I guess, so on that note, I guess for, for you, like what's, what's next? What are some of the projects you're currently focused on or that you're going to be focusing on if there's anything like that that you can share that, that's upcoming? So I always seem to have lots of stuff on my plate. Right now, I'm setting up a workshop in Toronto. It's called Draw Code. And that's going to be all about WebGL and shaders and 3D and 3JS and teaching those kind of things. So that's a big thing for me to do is, is setting that up. And we just announced the tickets. And so it's going to be happening at uh, MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto. And then aside from that project, there's also a few other things that I'm sort of working on in the side. One of them is a magazine for generative art. And it's very early stages. We don't know if it's really going to happen yet. Me and a friend of mine in London, we're starting to plan this. And it might be a very limited sort of special edition magazine that would come out just once a year, twice a year, and highlight several different artists that are working with code and computation and working in this kind of space just to try and get more interest and in trying to also bring this space into other circles like design circles and people that are working with print and people that are working with typography and people that might not be too familiar with creative coding but just trying to get that into their sort of scene as well so that's another little thing and then beyond that I'm also always working on my own art and trying to put out new prints and new interactive experiences and pitching those to places like museums and galleries and things like that. So lots of things going on on the side. Yeah, absolutely. And so throughout the conversation, we've talked about, I guess, different ways that, that people can get started, different communities. But what's one thing that you wish you had better understood or had known or, or just, you know, even a few things uh, as a freelancer, as an artist, as a creator? What is some advice or some insight that you would give to them to, to like stop and think about? I mean, one of the things that I wish I had studied more and one of the things I wish I knew more about when I started freelancing and when I started getting into this space was just more about design and design thinking and really approaching problems with that mindset of I'm not just going to code this but I'm going to first think about it and plan out how I'm going to approach it and really approach it like a designer would not even just thinking about it but also trying to come up with a sort of visual identity or a visual system or a visual sort of documentation maybe using Photoshop or a design tool to actually come up with like a PDF proposal or a concept for the work that you're going to be creating before you actually go about coding it and starting to do the engineering side of things. It's something that I wish I had known when I was starting as a freelancer because it would have saved me lots of time. And nowadays when I do client work, I'm almost always sending my work through this sort of field of documentation and, and design thinking so that it's not just here's the web page or 
here's the code. It's more, here's the brief that you've given me and here's the problem that we're trying to solve and here's my rationale and sort of the breakdown of how we're going to solve that together. And so, yeah, I guess that's a bit of a loaded answer, but it all comes down to sort of design thinking and it's something I wish I had studied more. And I think it's something that a lot of engineers and a lot of programmers neglect, but it's something that would really help a lot of them in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I'm starting to see that pop up more and more, just design thinking and, and the process which you kind of approach solution design and, and kind of working through that. So that's very interesting to hear you, I guess, focus in on that area versus you spend more time learning a specific programming language or something. It's almost like spend more time thinking about the approach and the structure and, and all the thinking that goes into creating the right thing. And then the tool becomes just like more of a plug and play adapting to whatever the game plan is. Yeah, for sure. So I'd love to understand like more of your, your workflow when it comes to creating those tools. Like it maybe comes back to the design thinking, but you're faced with a, with a creative task and you have a certain vision and you start outlining like, this is what it's going to take to make this and this is how I'm going to approach it. And like, there's got to be some black boxes where you're like, I really don't know what, what's going to happen here. Or, you know, I'm not 100% sure on how do you get into a flow state to sort of figure that out, whether it's from the creative side or the tool creation side where you're like, there's this black box in the middle of my process here or at this next step. And I'm really not sure the best way and I want to explore. What does that look like in, in your mind and in your process? Yeah, well, the nice thing is I've done it so many times now over the last couple of years. And before I was freelancing, I was already really comfortable with this kind of get a brief and I'd have to figure it out. But when I was just starting off, there was this sort of moment of panic where it's like, okay, I have X number of days to implement this crazy effect that I have no idea how to achieve. And I maybe at the time I wasn't as strong with shaders or with effects or something like that. And so I would really just end up having to practice and practice and hope for the best. And a lot of the times I would spend all this time on this one effect and then I'd realize I've sort of just blown my time budget and I hadn't even achieved the visuals I was trying to get. And then I would just spend the next 30 minutes or something, maybe that's all I, the time I had left, and I would just hack it together in a totally different way, like a totally, I'm going to take a shortcut and make it the easiest thing I can think of. And in the end, that's often the one that actually looks better and produces sort of a better result. And so after just doing that a lot of times, I've, I've now come to sort of see these black boxes as like, okay, I'm going to budget enough time so that I can do the quick way, but also try and do some of the more complex ways if I need to. But yeah, these black boxes where you don't really know how much time it's going to take you to do a certain thing. You just kind of have to have faith in your own work and it starts to come more naturally as you practice a lot. But when you're just starting, it, it can be really scary. And that's also why I build all these tools for myself is because I am able to reuse the same concepts over and over again when I have a tool that I've built specifically for my own type of artwork. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess between alternating, because earlier we were talking about like a tool building phase and then a creative phase. And so if you're able to invest more time building your own tools or better understanding the tools that you are using, then in the future, you're able to take on more ambitious challenges. And because you can rely on the fact that, hey, I've spent so much time developing this tool, or I know that this component is sort of in there, I can maybe go in and add to that little, you know, particular individual spot. So do you find that your creative outputs are becoming more ambitious over time as well? Yeah, for sure. And the kind of interesting thing is that I, as I'm working on these client projects and sort of it starts off as maybe a client will have like a request for like a print or a specific animation or something that's maybe running in HTML. But as I sort of go with these projects and continue getting more and more tools that I'm building for myself for these projects and 
continuing to sort of iterate and get more comfortable with these projects, the more I'm starting to sell clients on, I'm not just going to give you this animation, but I'm going to give you this whole design tool that I've been building over the last one year, but I'll craft the tool specifically. I'll sort of take a chunk of the tool off and sort of mold that specifically to your problem that you're trying to solve so that at the end of it, they have an animation, they have a print, they have an HTML page, they have like all these different exports and all these formats. So it's just really interesting to see how that changes and, and the scope kind of grows, but it grows for the client. It seems like the client seems like they're getting more out of it. But for me, it's not larger scope than it was before because I've already been building the same sort of process and the same set of tools over the last couple of years. And so I'm able to just keep reusing them in, in different ways. And it's almost like each time I do it, the project gets easier for me, but produces more output for the client. So that's kind of a nice thing about building tools for your own specific workflows. Absolutely. It's very cool. And so maybe just a little bit more on the business side of things, because you also mentioned like pitching museums and galleries and obviously clients and maintaining a portfolio as a, as a designer, you know, uh, creator, artist. How do you then incorporate the tool and, and what you were just talking about, like a larger sort of set of value for the client? How do you incorporate that in, into the pitches, into the exposition of what you're able to do for certain people or into the creative process of helping them brainstorm or, or understand how the tools can be leveraged to do something that's engaging and unique and, and amazing? It's something that's been making its way into my pitches and sort of proposals a lot more is the fact that I'm not just building a single image, but I'm building this system that is very flexible and can be applied in many different formats, many different ways. Like one of the things I've started doing, and this kind of goes back to chatting about design thinking and, and sort of thinking about our work as designs rather than just as pieces of code. But for example, one thing I'll do is I'll actually create mock-ups where I'll take some of the generative designs that I'm making that are just PNGs, but then I'll apply those to maybe a mural in like a photograph or like a billboard outside or like maybe something as simple as like an iPhone wallpaper or things like that, just creating these mock-ups to show the actual work in different places. Because quite often when you show just a PNG file to a client, they're just going to think, okay, all they can do is have this PNG file that they might share on Instagram or something. But when you show them the entire system of design, when you show them how flexible it is and how this tool that you've created to create images or artworks, it can be used in so many different ways. They start to get really excited about it. And especially they start to get really excited about seeing the sliders and seeing the parametric aspect of it. Because it's almost like you've built them a little mini version of Houdini or something or, or some mini little design software that is specifically for their brand or specifically for the project that they're trying to work on. They have their own sliders and their own color pickers and, and their own parameters that they can tweak. And that really tends to get a lot of clients excited because they can see how they'll have the, the full control of being able to change things. And they'll also have the flexibility that later maybe they decide to change some colors and they can always just change the colors using the tool rather than having to recommission the designer. So yeah, it's, it's a whole big thing, actually. Like the whole topic of pitching and proposals like, is another thing I could probably chat about for hours because it's something I didn't know a lot about when I started freelancing and it's really a huge part of freelancing and it's a huge part of especially doing art and especially media art and, and digital art. You have to send a lot of proposals and you have to sort of scour the web for open calls and requests for, for artworks and things like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe we'll have to, you know, set up a, a different chat at a later point to, to kind of go through through your experience there and, and insights, because I'm sure that, you know, a lot of other creators and artists come head to head with, with similar challenges. But do you think the demand for that kind of work like you're talking about is growing? Do you think brands are looking for more of these mini tools, more of these unique experiences, do you, maybe not just brands, but all kinds of clients? Definitely look at the kind of work that's coming out from from brands right now and the kind of work that's being shared a lot on these design channels. And a lot of design studios, like major design studios, are producing work that, if you look at it, it kind of looks a little bit computational. And a lot of the times it's because they're using things like Houdini or they're using some plugin in After Effects that that ends up warping things or repeating things. And there ends up being a little bit of code in their designs, but they're not really using code to the full potential because quite often they're just using plugins or, or quite often they're sort of just dabbling with uh, with shaders and things like that. But when you actually start to introduce a creative coder who's specifically very used to writing a lot of code and very complex code, then you can really start to create these interesting visuals in, in different ways. And so, yeah, I definitely think it's an area of the industry that's going to just keep growing and brands and design studios are going to become more and more aware of it and more and more interested in it. The nice thing, it's it's still very niche and there's not a lot of people doing it. And so there's a lot of, it's quite fun still and it's it doesn't feel like it's overly saturated or anything like that. And it's kind of cool because each creative coder sort of brings their own little style to the table. And so everyone's got different things that they're producing and, and they're specializing in. So definitely something that seems to be growing. Wicked, that's amazing. So if somebody was looking to kind of get started, uh, obviously they should uh, sign up for Draw a Code uh, down in Toronto, but are there any other resources, individuals, a- anything that, that has to do with you know creative coding, generative art that you would point other people towards? So yeah, there's a few resources that I always recommend. One of them is called Generative Artistry by Tim Holman. And it's this really nice little site where he goes through a few different artworks some of them are, are kind of iconic artworks like the Joy Division cover or something from Vera Molnar, who's a really pioneer of, of penplotter art in the 60s and 70s. And he sort of just breaks down the simple steps that you need to create these kind of artworks. And it's, it's really sort of the thing I suggest to everyone to get started with this space. But for something a little bit more advanced, getting into things like WebGL, I actually have a workshop also online on frontendmasters.com. And then there's also lots of other resources just if you start Googling, you know, just Googling 3JS or WebGL or, or Canvas 2D even. That's kind of the nice thing about the web stack is that there's a lot of resources online and it's very accessible. You can sort of just jump into CodePen and, and start editing right away. You don't need to buy anything uh, or sort of set any tools up. You can just right away start learning and, and practicing. Absolutely. It's super cool. So Matt, I mean, thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with us today. It was awesome to have you on the show. And, and you know, I think we're all going to continue to follow your journey and your work and, and the stuff that you're putting out there. So thanks for doing what you do and make sure you keep on creating. Cool. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Tech Plus Art Podcast. We're a very small team behind this project, so we greatly appreciate all your support. If you love our content and these podcasts, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. This really does go a long way in helping us get discovered and reach more creators. As always, you can find us online at maketechart.com and at maketechart everywhere else. See you soon.